0: Ezekiel chapter 1, I'm going to read to you verses 4 through 28, and then we'll jump right into it. Ezekiel says, As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually. And in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had had a human likeness, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings." Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the soles of a cast foot, and they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands, and on their four, and the four had their faces, and their wings, thus, their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side. the four had the face of an ox on their left side. The four had the face of an eagle. And such were their faces, and their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another, while two covered their bodies. And each went straight forward, wherever the spirit would go they went, without turning as they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures." And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning, and the living creatures darted to and fro like the appearance of a flash of lightning. Now as I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the earth beside the living creatures, one for each of the four of them. As for the appearance of the wheels and their construction, their appearance was like the gleaming of beryl, and the four had the same likeness, their appearance and construction being as it were a wheel within a wheel. When they went, they went in any of the four direct, their four directions without turning as they went. And their rims were tall and awesome. And the rims of all four were full of eyes all around. And when the living creatures went, the living wheels went, the wheels went beside them. And when the living creatures rose from the earth, the wheels rose. Wherever the Spirit wanted to go, they went, and we, the wheels rose along with them. For the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When these, or those went, these went, and when those stood, these stood, and when those rose from the earth, the wheels rose along with them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Over the heads of the living creatures there was the likeness of an expanse shining like awe-inspiring crystal, spread out above their heads, and under the expanse of their wings were, were stretched out straight one toward another, and each creature had two wings covering its body. And when they went, I heard the sound of their wings like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army. When they stood still, they lit down their wings, and there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads. When they stood still, they lit down their wings. And above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne in appearance, like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of the throne was the likeness with a human appearance." And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bowl that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. I read this whole section because we are going to finish this section tonight and we're actually going to get into chapter two just a little bit. So in order to do that, let's pull out a few more things from this section so we can continue on in our study. Uh, These cherubim are traveling under the throne of God, and we're going to deal with more on that later. And between them at their feet are coals of fire. Look again at chapter one, verses 13 and 14. It says, As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning. And the living creatures darted to and fro like the appearance of a flash of lightning. Jump over to chapter 10 real quick and look at verses 1 through 8. Ezekiel says, "Then I looked, and behold, on the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim there appeared above them something like a sapphire in appearance like a throne. And he said to them, "Man clothed in linen, go in among the whirling wheels underneath the cherubim, fill your hands with the burning coals from between the cherubim and scatter them over the city." And he went in before my eyes. Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the house. When the man went in, and a cloud filled the inner court. And the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house. And the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. And the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard as far as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. And when he commanded the man clothed in linen, take fire from between the whirling wheels. From between the cherubim he went in and stood beside a wheel, and the cherub stretched out his hand from between the cherubim to the fire that was between the cherubim, and took some of it and put and put it into the hands of the man clothed in linen, who took it and went out. The cherubim appeared to have the form of human hand under their wings. So here again we see that at the feet of these cherubim, these four cherubim, there's coals of fire. Actually, let me show you one more place. Go to Ezekiel chapter 28. Look at verses 11 through 14. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you... You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. So here we see from three different places that these cherubim at their feet and amongst their feet were coals of burning fire. And there was flashing of lightning and brightness around. And when the cherubim moved around, of course, the coals of fire moved around with them. And we see from Ezekiel chapter 10, what does God use the coals of fire for? Or what does he have a man do? Spread it out over the city. It's going to be a time of judgment. When you get to chapter 10, you'll see that he's going to be bringing a judgment. And he takes from the coals of fire amongst the, around the feet of the cherubim and has them spark, spread them and scatter them over the city. Now, as we touched on last week, these cherubim have wheels, within wheels, at their feet. And these whirling wheels allow them to move in any direction without turning. And so what I want to do tonight is I want to kind of take you back and look at the passages that we've just looked at again and read a couple of places. And again, please keep in mind, if you do a little study, you're going to find all sorts of different drawings of what people imagine the cherubim to look like online. And I'm going to throw a speculation out to you. This is my speculation. And again, whenever I use speculation, I'll tell you that. But if I ever speculate, it is only because of Scripture. All right. And so what I want you to see is I can I'm imagining and they're big and awesome and tall rims of these wheels. They Each one, the scripture says, each one had one wheel for each cherubim. Yet each wheel had a wheel within a wheel so that it can move in any direction. And I picture a ring that goes this way and another one inside it that goes this way. I honestly thought about taking a wiffle ball and cutting with a knife little orange slices out of it so you'd get a picture of what I'm talking about. Um, it's, It's almost like a ball, but it's just really a wheel within a wheel. And whichever way they go, it can go. Do you understand what I'm saying? They don't turn. If they go this way, they go this way. If they go this way, they go, whoops, this way. I didn't see that there. That's why you don't make glass coffee tables. All right. What I want you to understand is, I guess the best way I can picture the movement is kind of like, remember the Etch-a-Sketch? How did you move with the Etch-a-Sketch? You go this way or this way, you know, kind of a thing. And that's how they move. And their wheels are like a wheel within a wheel. All right? Go back quickly, and I'll show you what I mean. Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 15 through 21. Now, as I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the earth beside the living creatures, one for each of the four of them. As for the appearance of the wheels and their construction, their appearance was like the gleaming of beryl. And the four had the same likeness, their appearance and construction being, as it were, a wheel within a wheel. When they went, they went in any of their four directions without turning as they went and their rims were tall and awesome. And the rims of all four were full of eyes all around. And when the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them. And when the living creatures rose from the earth, the wheels rose wherever the Spirit wanted them to go, and where the wheels rose along with them, for the Spirit of living creatures was in the wheels. When these wheels went, or when those went, these went. When those stood, these stood. And when those rose from the earth, these wheels rose along with them, for the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Jump over to chapter 10 again. And look at verses 9 through 13 and then 16 through 19. Ezekiel 10 verses 9 through 13. He says, And I looked, and behold, there were four wheels beside the cherubim, one beside each cherub, and the appearance of the wheels was like a sparkling barrel. And as for their appearance, the four had the same likeness as if it were a wheel within a wheel. When they went, they went in any of their four directions without turning as they went, but in whatever direction the front wheel faced, the others followed without turning as they went. And their whole body, their rims, and their spokes, their wings, and the wheels were full of eyes all around. The wheels that the four of them had, as for the wheels, they were called in my hearing the whirling wheels. All right? Now, look over at verses 16 through 19. And when the cherubim went, the wheels went beside them. And when the cherubim lifted up their wings to mount up from the earth, the wheels did not turn from beside them. When they stood still, these stood still. And when they mounted up, these mounted up with them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in them. And then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord. And the glory of the God of Israel was over them. All right? Now, what I want to do now is take you to Revelation 4. In order for us to go where I want to go tonight and deal with some of the things I want us to deal with, we need to take a look at John's account in Revelation chapter 4 of what he saw when he was given vision of God on his throne, and he sees these cherubim, these living creatures as well. So go to Revelation chapter 4, and we're going to look at verses 1, Actually, let's just go to Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Let's do that. Actually, yeah, let's do that. And then we're going to show you two other places in Ezekiel. Go to Revelation 4. Look at verses 1 through 11. After this, I looked, and behold, the door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. "'At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God.' And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever, and they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So now we see that John sees a very similar picture. Remember how Ezekiel sees that there's these cherubim, these four living creatures with the face of a man and an ox and an eagle and so on. And he also sees that above the cherubim are, is an expanse. And Ezekiel then sees above that expanse, that is like crystal, above that expanse, there's a throne John sees the same thing. We're going to see in a little bit, though, that instead of John, Ezekiel seeing it vertically, John sees it more horizontally. You'll notice that there's the throne, and then in front of the throne is the expanse, and then in front of that and the is the cherubim. So go back real quick to Ezekiel chapter 1 and look at verses 22 through 28, and you'll see what I mean. Ezekiel sees this throne as well. In Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 22 through 28, it says, Over the heads of the living creatures there was a likeness of an expanse, shining like awe-inspiring crystal, spread out above their heads, and under the expanse their wings were stretched out straight one toward another, and each creature had two wings covering its body. And when they went, I heard the sound of their wings like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army." When they stood still, they lit down their wings, and there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads, and when they stood still, they lit down their wings, and above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of the throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that's in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the glory of the Lord. And, of course, he sees it and he falls on his face, which we'll deal with later. In Ezekiel 10.1, I just want to show you one verse in Ezekiel 10, and then we'll start to break some of this down now. In Ezekiel 10.1, you see, then I looked, and behold, on the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, there appeared above them something like a sapphire in appearance like a throne. All right, so now make sure that we're all together here. We got the cherubim. What is at the feet of the cherubim? The burning coals. What is beside each of the feet of the cherubim? The whirling wheels, they're side by side and their wings touch each other. And above them, in Ezekiel's vision, above the cherubim is what? The expanse that looks like crystal. And above that expanse that looks like crystal is what? The throne and on the throne is God. Now, John sees the same thing. Yet in John's account, he says instead of above and below, he'll say in front of and in front of and in front of. He sees it in a horizontal manner. Now... John sees, though, well, before we get to the 24 thrones that John sees, John's Revelation account is almost exactly the same as what Ezekiel saw, but with some slight differences. John saw the same rainbow around the throne that Ezekiel saw. Did anybody catch that John saw the same rainbow? Because if you go back to Revelation 4, look at verses 2 and 3. Revelation 4, 2, and 3, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. All right? Now, back in Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, if you remember what we just read, Ezekiel sees the same thing. We'll just jump to verse 28. It said, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so is the appearance of the brightness all around. So they both saw the the rainbow, the glory of God in the form of a rainbow, the color of a rainbow, sparkling like an emerald as well. But at the same time, John sees 24. In Revelation 4, he sees 24 thrones around the throne. Ezekiel doesn't see anything but one throne. Now, as I'm about to talk about, I'm gonna share some speculation with you again. My speculation is based on scripture. But I'm not gonna say this is exactly why because there could be lots of reasons why. But I wanna deal with tonight, why do you think that Ezekiel doesn't see these 24 thrones but John does see these 24 thrones? Keep in mind, a very simple answer is sometimes God lets some people see some things and other people see other things because God reveals himself however he wants, whenever he wants, Because if you remember in Revelation, sometimes you see him as a lamb and other times you see him as a lion. Sometimes you see him riding on a white horse and he manifests himself in many different ways. So the easy, simple answer is he might not have wanted Ezekiel to see the 24 thrones for the purpose of what he was showing Ezekiel. And he had a reason for just showing John the 24 thrones for what he was showing John. That could be the simple answer. But I have another answer that I think is scriptural. Does anybody have an idea what that might be? Why John sees 24 thrones and Ezekiel doesn't? Maybe the thrones weren't there yet because he didn't have all those that were going to be in those thrones. Very good. Very good. Remember in our study from Revelation, I believe without question, the Bible teaches us that the 24 elders around the throne are the church. And in Ezekiel, the church hasn't begun yet. And if you remember from our study, we're not going to take the time to turn there. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, Jesus keeps making promises to the churches. He says, you know, blessed are those who hear what God says to the churches. And he says, to him who conquers, I'm going to let you sit on my throne with me as I sat on my father's throne. To him who conquers, I'm going to have him clothed in white. To him who conquers, I'm going to give a golden crown. And he says, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And as you remember from our study in Revelation, you may or may not, let me just remind you, back in 1 Chronicles chapter 24, when they had so many priests they all couldn't serve at the same time, David broke all the priests into 24 divisions, which represented the whole. And they all served when their division was serving. And when they had so many singers and worship leaders that they couldn't all serve at the same time, he broke all the musicians and the worship leaders into 24 divisions. And I believe without question, because of what Jesus has promised the church, and then he says, let me show you what's going to take place after this. And now he sees around the throne, 24 thrones, with people dressed in white, with the golden crowns, and how they're representative of the whole church as broken into 24 divisions, I think that that is the church. And the reason why Ezekiel doesn't see them is the church hasn't begun yet at that time when he sees his vision. But by the time John sees his vision, the church is there. At the same time, though, there are some seeming discrepancies between what John sees and what Ezekiel sees. And I want to deal with that a little bit tonight. I don't want to skip over it. In John's vision, like I said, some things seem to be more horizontal than vertical. But John says the four living creatures have six wings when Ezekiel clearly states they only have four. And I want to deal with that tonight. Isaiah was given a similar vision of God on his throne, if you remember. And if not, turn me to Isaiah 6. And look at verses 1 through 7. Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 7. He says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory." And said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. So here we see Isaiah sees above the throne seraphim, and the seraphim have six wings. Does that mean that what John saw in Revelation actually are seraphim and not cherubim? I lean toward the fact that no, John saw saw cherubim because they're called living creatures, just like in Ezekiel 1. And he describes them as having the same ox, man, face, eagle. You know, I mean, ox, man, (coughs) excuse me, my brain just shut off. What's the fourth one there? Lion. Thank you. Ox, man, lion and and, and eagle uh, uh, faces. And we see very clearly from chapter 10 of Ezekiel that he says, no, these four living creatures are cherubim. And these are the same ones I saw at the Kebar Canal. But for some reason, John sees six wings on them, and Ezekiel only sees four. And he clearly states that they only had four, where John sees that they have six. Now, the seraphim in Revelation cry out, holy, 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 in a similar manner to the way Sorry, the seraphim cry out holy, holy, holy in Isaiah in a similar way to the way the four living creatures in John's vision cry out holy, holy, holy. But if you notice what the seraphim say in Isaiah's vision is what? Holy, holy, holy what? It's right there in front of you. The whole earth is full of his glory. The ones that are crying holy, holy, holy in Revelation 4 say what? Who is and who was and who is to come. No, they're all crying out, holy, 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 but what they say is different. So how do we deal with these slight or seeming discrepancies? Now, I'm going to tell you the biblical answer, and then I'm going to show you biblically why this is the biblical answer. The biblical answer is we don't know. And I want to spend some time tonight showing you from Scripture why it's okay to say we don't know and why we actually should say we don't know. See, there's sometimes that we think that the answer we don't know or I don't know is just like, well, that's not going to give me an answer. I want an answer, and I don't know is not the answer I want. And you feel like sometimes when you ask your parents something and they say, because I said so. Well, that doesn't answer it. But actually, I think scripturally, We are supposed to, in many instances, say we don't know. See, we live among that time period that the Bible says that knowledge is going to increase, man was gonna get further and further away from God. We wanna figure it all out. We want to understand why here six and why here four. And wait a minute, why is it horizontal here, but there it's vertical? And why aren't there 24 elders? And we want we want to get into arguing over these things. And I want to show you from scripture that actually the best answer is in these times when the scripture does not clearly say, the best answer is we don't know and it's okay. I'm gonna take you, you don't have to turn there, write this down in your notes and look at it later on. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29. It's real easy to memorize. Deuteronomy 29, 29, it says this. The secret things belong to the Lord our God the things revealed to us and to our children. In other words, there's stuff that God knows and he hadn't told us and that's the way it's supposed to be. If you look later on at Proverbs chapter 25 verse 2, it says it is the glory of God to conceal a matter. It's the glory of kings to search matters out. Let me say that again. It's to God's glory to hide stuff. It's our to our glory to search and to inquire but keep in mind there are some things that will be revealed there'll be other things that aren't plus i also want you to understand as you are dealing with this issue of isaiah being taken and seeing god on his throne he doesn't even mention the cherubim and the four living creatures at all he just mentions the throne and the seraphim and the coal before the before the before the throne Ezekiel sees the cherubim and the whirling wheels and the expanse and the throne, but he doesn't mention seraphim. John sees God and he sees his throne and he sees the expanse and the living creatures and he sees the seven spirits before the throne, which aren't even mentioned by the other two. When it comes to things that are to come, things that maybe are even harder for us to fully put into our mind, the Bible actually teaches That we're to know that these things exist and that things are real and that there is a lot for us. But we're not to know about all of it yet. Did you know the Bible actually says that? Let me show you what I mean. Go with me to 1 Corinthians, sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, look at verses 1 through 4. Paul says, I must go on boasting, though there's nothing to be gained by it. I'll go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Let me clarify what it means by third heaven. You're going to see him later on just in a few verses describe the third heaven as paradise. In the Jewish mindset, there were three three things called heaven. I'm not going to say three heavens per se, but just three things called heaven. The first heaven is when you go outside and you look in the sky and you see the birds flying around, the planes going by. That's what they called the first heaven. The second heaven they saw as where the stars and the moon and the sun and everything were. That was beyond where we could get. But the third heaven was even beyond that where we can't see and that's where God lives. And so in the mind of the Jewish person, the third heaven is where God is. There's the first heaven where the birds fly, second heaven where the stars are. Beyond that is where God is in the third heaven also known as paradise. Listen to what he says. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body. I don't know. God knows. In other words, he said it was so real. It could have been my body that was there. I had a body, but I don't know if it was my body. I don't know if it was a spirit vision or what, but Only God knows whether or not I was there or I was just taken there in a vision. I don't know how it all happened. But listen to what he says next. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. I'm not going to make a blanket statement here, but I'm going to tell you that I'm always leery of anyone who has, I went to see heaven and then I came back stories. First off, if what they say they saw doesn't match up with the scripture, I reject it. Because Satan, the Bible says, loves to masquerade as an angel of light. These people that say, I saw this light and I followed this light and, and God said, everybody goes to heaven and all this kind of stuff. If it doesn't match up with scripture, I reject it. Plus the Bible also says that Paul, talking about himself, was taken there and he wasn't allowed to talk about what he saw. Paul's not allowed to talk about what he saw, yet all these other people are write all these books. Oh, by the way, when Peter and James and John were on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus and his glory shone through. And that real world, not the temporary world that we live in, but the real world started to shine through his flesh. And his whole person glowed and all that. What did he tell them when they left? You can't tell anyone what you saw until after I've risen from the dead. Go to Romans chapter 8. The same Paul that saw things that he's not allowed to talk about, man may not utter about what he saw. In Romans chapter 8, verse 18, Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In other words, when he wrote this, he'd already been there. He says, let me just tell you this much. I'm not allowed to talk about what I saw, but I can tell you this much. The suffering we go through in this life, and by the way, he suffered more than we probably ever will. The suffering we go through in this life isn't even worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed to us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, we're not going to take the time to turn there because I want to take you to the passage it's quoted from. But Paul says, and he's quoting from Isaiah 64, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has entered into the heart of man what God has in store and prepared for those who love him and wait on him. Folks, let me just tell you, I don't want you to get caught up in the chat rooms on the internet and arguing with people over scripture and the minutiae over six wings versus four wings. We know this much. God reveals some things and then he tells some people, you can't say anything. Here he says, you can say something, but it's not until this time. And then others he'll say, look, some things are just not gonna be known until it's time. God's given us enough information to know there is a heaven. There is a real spiritual realm and we're gonna end up there one day. But at the same time, he says... I also want you to live by faith and you just be willing to understand that I showed Ezekiel what I wanted Ezekiel to see, I showed John what I wanted John to see and if it seems like there's discrepancies, how are you going to deal with it? My attitude is the secret things belong to you, the things revealed to us and to our children. It's to your glory to hide stuff. It's to our glory to search things out. But in our searching, when we hit a wall and you say, not yet, it's okay to say, we don't know. Well, oh, by the way, 2 Timothy 2.24 says this, the Lord's servant must not quarrel, but must gently instruct in the hopes that God will bring them to an understanding. In other words, when you... Try to win an argument with your brother over scriptural reference, because people wrestle over a whole lot of stuff, don't they? I mean, there's wrestling over who was the actual replacement for Judas and all this kind of stuff. We want to argue over all this stuff. And when I was younger, I used to be the best at it. As you know, God's wired my brain where I've memorized a lot of scripture. And when people want to argue over scripture, I thought that was fun. Because my attitude was this. Oh, you want to get into a fight with me? I got more bullets in my gun than you do. I'm gonna win. And it wasn't until years later that God began to show me from Scripture that I was never supposed to quarrel. I was never supposed to argue. I was never supposed to win the argument. And then actually all I was doing, even though I thought I was being righteous, was just demonstrating my flesh as I tried to win. I know more. I'm right. How I see the Scripture is better than you. And just recently, an interesting thing happened to me. I was meeting at, um, I can't remember the the restaurant. It's on 192, from the mall, and they have salads and sandwiches. Jason's, thank you, Jason's Delhi. I was meeting with a man who supports the ministry and loves to study, and he does research for my ministry at times because he's just one of these guys that loves to study the word. And we meet every now and then to bring our Bibles and just wrestle over the scriptures. And as we were sitting there talking, a young man walks up to me and he says, Are you a preacher? I said, Yes. He goes, I thought you were. I heard you say the word amillennial. I said, Actually, I, we're sitting here talking about this, and I was actually, I'm against amillennialism. He goes, Oh, I'd love to argue with you about that. I'd win. (laughs) And my flesh wanted to say, Oh, yeah. (laughs) But I quickly prayed and said, Lord, I want my response to be your response. And my response was, I don't want to argue with over it because you think it's a matter of winning and losing. And since you think it's a matter of winning and losing, I'm not going to argue. And he left and went to his table. And I sat and thought to myself, But Lord, I could have won. (laughs) and he said you wouldn't have won if anybody sees anything it's not because jim johnson convinced them if you're convinced because i've convinced you it's not been done by the spirit of god only god opens eyes and so folks there's a lot of stuff we don't know and that's okay oh by the way you know that passage that i quoted to you in first chronicle first corinthians chapter two verse nine how no eye is seen, no ear has heard, nor might come into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him, go with me real quick to Isaiah 64. I want to show you the passage that that came from. You see, one of the fun things I'm loving to do now is whenever I see in the New Testament someone inspired of the Holy Spirit, as you know, whenever people wrote the scriptures, they weren't writing. The Spirit of God was writing through them. And whenever the Spirit of God leads them to quote from an Old Testament passage as it is written, and then they bring it into their teaching, I always want to go back and find where was that that they were quoting from? What was the context? How did they see it in the context and bring it into what they were teaching? And I went back and looked for this passage where Paul says, as it's written, no eye has seen nor ear has heard. And it took me back to Isaiah 64, and I was blown away by how many passages are quoted in the New Testament from this passage. Where do you see it? Oh, and listen to the attitude of the heart. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. Isn't that some of our heart right now? We know that when he comes, he's going to level everything and set up his kingdom. And I, My first prayer was when I saw that, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down before the election. I really did. That's the first thing that jumped into my head. As when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When when you did awesome things that we didn't look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways, behold, you are angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. You ever heard that one before? We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. You are our potter. We are all the work of your hand, be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire, and all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? Look at that humble attitude. It's about you, it's not about us. And actually, when I look at us, I realize we're deserving of everything we got. Yet at the same time, you're a God who forgives. And then the prayer, as you see in the second half of this passage, turns to, I think the nation of Israel is going to be praying this as they're hiding in the wilderness. Will you come? Will you help? As we move into chapter 2, I don't want you to miss, though, the reaction of Ezekiel to seeing God's glory. Go back to Ezekiel chapter 1. Let's wrap up in Ezekiel 1. I don't want you to miss, though, the reaction of Ezekiel to seeing his glory. In Ezekiel chapter 1, look at verse 28. It says, like the appearance of a bow in the cloud on the day of rain, so is the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, and when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. What was Ezekiel's reaction to seeing this vision of the cherubim and the wheels and all this stuff? What was his reaction to seeing it? He fell on his face. He just immediately fell on his face. Remember back in Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah saw the Lord on his throne? What was Isaiah's reaction? Oh, unto me, I'm undone. I'm dead. I'm a dead man. A man of unclean lips, a little among a people of unclean lips, and I've seen the Lord of glory. In Revelation. We're not going to turn there in chapter one, verses twelve through seventeen. John was on the Isle of Patmos, and while he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, he heard a voice speaking. And he turned, and when he looked, he saw Jesus, and he saw him in his glory. And what was John's reaction when he saw Jesus? He fell at his feet as though dead. I mean, this is a this is a, an amazing reaction that I actually picture similar to what happened to the guards outside the tomb when they saw the angels. Kind of like a goat, you know? When you scare a goat, you ever seen a goat when they get scared? They stiffen and fall over. Go to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. Look at verses 1 through 9. But Saul, we know him as Paul But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you're to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless. They heard the voice, but they didn't see anyone. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. When Paul meets him, what's his reaction? He fell down. You know I started to realize? I'm going to ask you some questions tonight. I really want you to, this, the Spirit of God, kind of speak to it. Yes, because of Jesus, we need not fear God's wrath. And we can call him Abba, because we're now his children. But have we lost our reverence for his holiness? Do we tend to think that he's like us too often? Do we have the same hatred of our sin that he does? It'll do us good to be reminded of these visions of God and have our thoughts and actions realigned with his holiness. I don't want the fact that John sees six wings and Ezekiel sees four, and we're not even really sure how these whirling wheels work and what they look like and all this stuff, and, well, how come the seraphim are here, but they're not over here? I don't want that to make you miss the whole purpose of the visions of God. He was revealing himself to remind them of his glory, he had a purpose. And you know what I realized? I don't see anybody's reaction in the scriptures to the vision of God by going, I see six wings, over here there's four. (laughs) Isn't that interesting how we look at the scriptures and we would rather figure them out than allow what has seen affect us? Yes, sir. One of the biggest things you hear is people say, Bible is written by men. And I think that, I explain all the things that you've been saying, it's proof that it was written by God, because men would have got together to make it right. Yes. And God is beyond that. And it is right, but you're right. They would, they've gotten together to try to make it all line up. It's. You're going to see that in the in, in the account of his resurrection. One mentions one angel, one sees two. Which is it? Yes. Yes. By the way, that answer, that answer, yes, is going to help you in just a second. Go to Ezekiel chapter 2. Look at verses 1 and 2. And he said to me, son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the spirit entered into me and set me on my feet And I heard him speaking to me. We can't go any further. We're going to finish our study tonight with these two verses. Because I want to take the time to allow the Spirit of God to hopefully burn into your brains the truth that is revealed here. That unfortunately is another area that Christians want to argue with each other over. The whole wrestling match between man's free will and predestination or the sovereignty of God and all these terms we use. Let me clarify the term free will. I don't like the term free will because as much as the Bible teaches that man has a will and has a choice, we don't have free will in the sense of we don't have the ability to choose anything. I, wasn't, I don't have the ability to choose to be a woman. Now, some people may try that, but that's not what, that was chosen by God for me. You understand what I'm saying? I don't get to choose my spiritual gifts. That's pre-chosen by God for me. There are things that we have no choice over. But don't let the truth of that make you lose the fact that the Bible teaches that man does have a choice when it comes to salvation. Yet, as you're about to see, even though God says to him, commands him, stand up. God made him stand and I want to take you through some scriptures tonight to show you that the Bible simply says that we have a choice. Yet, if we choose, God did it. And don't go any further than that. Because the Bible is very clear that full of the scriptures is the word if, right? Doesn't God say if a lot? If you, then this. If you, then that. Well, if there was no if, God would never say if. If. But there is if, and I'm going to show you from Scripture, we have a responsibility, yet it's God who does it, and we don't get the glory. Yet, what? and here's what I want you to understand, and I'm going to deal this from Scripture. In Christendom today, and, and it's sad because this issue is dividing the church like you wouldn't believe. I don't want you to get in the fight. I want you to stay out of it. Because, unfortunately, what happens is both sides try to use human reasoning in with scripture. I've even, some of you have even heard, well, a dead person can't get up off the table. They have to have, be made to become alive by, them, by somebody else. Well, hang on for a second. Didn't Jesus say when he wrote to the church in Thyatira, you think you're alive, but you're dead? And what does he say? Wake up. Wake up and repent. And if you don't, he's telling dead people to get up. Oh, by the way, if they get up, God did it. But it doesn't remove man's responsibility. Any teaching that says it's all being done by God and man has no part, not biblical. Any teaching that says man can do it whenever he wants and God doesn't, it doesn't do the work, not biblical. And I'll show you from scriptures that you might not have ever seen in this light. Go with me to Philippians chapter 2. Look at verses 12 and 13. Paul says, therefore my beloved, Philippians 2 verse 12, therefore my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not also as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Whose responsibility is this, man's or God's? That's man's, we're told. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Oh, go to verse 13. For it's God who works in you both to will or to give you the desire and to work for his good pleasure. (laughs) Don't try to figure it out. Don't try to reconcile the two. You'll hurt yourself. It's there. God told Ezekiel, stand up. Get on your feet. The Spirit, as He was speaking to me, the Spirit of God came into me and stood me on my feet. It reminded me of when I got saved. See, way back in 1973, I got saved in a little town in Milton, New Hampshire. Just this past summer, as we were up there in New England and I was preaching there in New Hampshire, we had the whole family with us and what a gift of God that was and we had an afternoon free and we jumped in the rental car and I took them around to where I grew up and showed my kids where they had seen it before, but I showed them again where I lived and went to my old high school. And I actually we went and pulled in the parking lot and they were doing lots of work on the place to get ready for school starting up soon. And we went to the front office, and I just explained that I had graduated from there so many, many years ago. And could I just show my kids around? And they're like, sure. And I took them into the gymnasium. Not so much to show them that that's where I played basketball, but also to show that's where I got saved. You see, back in 1973, an evangelist came to that little town in New Hampshire, and they, all the churches came together. And they set up folding chairs in the gym. It was one of those old, do you remember those old gyms that had a stage on one end with a curtain and everything? It was one of those old gyms and he preached from the stage. And when the invitation time came, I I was eight years old at the time. My dad was the pastor of a church in that town. My mom was the pianist. We were there every time the doors were open. I I knew the Bible stories. I thought I was a Christian. That night when the evangelist was giving the invitation, I heard God clearly show me that I needed to do something personally about everything that I believed. I couldn't just believe it, I had to act on it. And folks, when I made the decision to respond, something supernatural happened and I started looking around very uncomfortably because I felt like someone picked me up out of my chair and was pushing me down the aisle to the point that I was literally looking like, who's shoving? He said, Jim, come, receive it. As I did, he did it. Go to John chapter 6. Look at verses 44 and 45. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Well, does he draw everybody? Keep reading. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So does he draw everybody? According to the scriptures, yes, he does. Now, if we're going to be faithful to the scripture, does everybody get the same amount of drawing? No. Jesus said it's going to be easier on the day of judgment for Solomon and Gomorrah than it will be for Capernaum. Why? He said if the miracles that had been done in Capernaum were done in Solomon and Gomorrah, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. Then God, why didn't you do those miracles in Solomon and Gomorrah? Because I chose not to. But everybody hears. I'm going to show you from Scripture. The Bible says that everybody hears. And I'm going to use it from a passage we like to use to say that everybody might not hear. By the way, real quickly in this passage, no one can come unless the father draws them. As it says in the prophets, they all will be taught by God. Whoever hears and learns comes. Uh, some translations say whoever li- hears and listens. I, that's not a bad one because you parents have raised teenagers, haven't you? Is there a difference between them hearing you and listening? Everybody hears. Well, You, you want to see? Go to Romans chapter 10. Remember that famous passage that everybody likes to use? Well, How can they hear unless someone preaches to them? Look at the whole context of what's going on here. Paul's been dealing with some deep, deep theology in these chapters here. And in chapter 10, starting in verse 8, listen to what he says. He says, But what does it say? What does he mean by when it says, What does it say? What's he saying? The scripture, the Old Testament. What does the scripture say? The word is near you, it's in your mouth and in your heart that is the word of faith that we proclaim because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved for with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved for the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all bestowing his riches on all who call on him for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved well how can they call on him in whom they have not believed and how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard and how are they to hear without someone preaching and how are they to preach unless they're sent as it is written how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news but they have not all obeyed the gospel now hang on for a second we love to take that passage out of context and say well how can they hear unless someone preaches to them in other words if you don't go preach to them they may never hear But if you look at the context, you're about to see that he's actually saying, as he's been quoting from the Old Testament, everything that I've been saying to you, this gospel that we've been proclaiming, it's already been there in the Old Testament all along. And God would never expect you to believe something he hadn't already told you. So how can they hear unless someone preaches to them? How can they hear that they've been sent? He already sent them. And then he goes and says, but not everybody believed the gospel. In other words, they heard it. Oh, you want further proof that they heard it? For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. Their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I asked, did Israel not understand? First, I, Moses says, I'll make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I'll make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, all, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So don't let anybody tell you that Jesus died only for the people who are going to be saved. Or that if God draws you, you can't say no. The scriptures teach very clearly. Stephen himself, while they are stoning him, says, You stiff-necked individuals, how long will you resist the Holy Spirit? Here we see in the scripture, I've held out my arms to a disobedient, obstinate, stubborn people. You had an opportunity. You said no. But if they say yes he does it. And don't try to make them come together in your brain. You won't be able to. They're both true. Did you have a question? You did. Okay. Um, like in Revelation, when the books, mm-hmm. there's Jesus' book of life. Mm-hmm. Well, again, what you're about to get into is a huge, and we're about to run out of time in the recording question. If you'll go back to when I taught on that at the end of the Revelation study, I answered that in a whole study by itself. I unfortunately don't have time, Tony, tonight to answer that question because that's a long answer. Go back and look at the end of the Revelation study and when you get to chapter 22 and chapter 20 and it deals with that, you'll see that the answer to that. But yes, I know where you're going. I can't answer that question because it would take too long to catch everybody back up. All right. Now, in Acts chapter, we're not going to take the time to turn there because a couple more things I want to do in closing here. In Acts 13, verses 42 through 48, you see a very really interesting passage. Paul goes into the synagogue and he preaches the gospel. And after he's done, as he's leaving, they all come out and they go, we want to hear some more next Sabbath. Would you, would you come preach some more? And Paul says a very interesting thing. He says, continue in the grace of God. In other words, the fact that you're curious and you're wanting to know more means the Father's drawing you. You better stay in the grace of God. Yet, you read, read the rest of the story, he goes back to the next Sabbath and he teaches some more, and many believed, and the scripture actually puts it this way, and all who were appointed for salvation believed. They're both there. Jesus stood over Jerusalem and wept. He said, oh, you'd only let me. I would have gathered you as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you weren't willing. Folks, I don't know how it works. Man has a choice. But if you respond, it's been done by God. Now let me help you, though, in closing. I think I can show you scripture a little bit how it works. And I think this will help. The question then is, what is our response to be then... What is our action if it's He who does it? If we have a responsibility, yet it's Him who does it, what is our response to be? I think the Bible tells us this. First of all, surrender first to the truth that only He can do what He's asked you to do. That's the first thing, folks. Surrender to the fact that it's only He can do. It's only he who can do what he asks you to do. In John 15, 5, Jesus says, what? Apart from me, you can do nothing. So the first thing, as a believer or an unbeliever, in order to understand your responsibility and the fact that it's God who does the work, you have to first surrender to the fact of anything that he wants you to do, only he can do it. Don't think for a second that this is you, all right? The second thing, though, is this. Receive by faith... What God is wanting to give you and do through you. Go to James chapter 1 and look at verse 21. I really want you to see this. This passage jumped off the scripture at me just recently. And I've never really looked at it in this way. Look at verse 21 of James chapter 1. He says, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness what? The implanted word which is able to save your souls. Do you remember the parable of the soils? How the seed was scattered and the seed is the word of God? And some sprung up, but they hadn't really received it. They responded to it in some way, but they didn't receive it. It was the good soil that actually received the word that was planted. But look at verse 22. The next thing we're to do is act in obedience to what God has said. By doing what he's commanded you to do while trusting in him to do it through you. Look at James chapter 1. We've just seen in verse 21 that we're to receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres or continues to do so, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, will be blessed in his doing. The best thing I can tell you is this. The best way I can put it into your words is this. That might help you help somebody else. When it comes to sharing the gospel with somebody, tell them to stop resisting and to receive what God is offering. Stop pushing him away. And for those of us who are believers, who have him within us, and he's continually offering us his grace, offered us rivers of living water and will never thirst again, whatever it is that he's working with you on in your area of sanctification, stop pushing him away. He's drawing. He's calling. He's wooing. Unbeliever? Put your hands down. Or if you're going to put them in any direction... Put them this way. As one preacher said years ago, I loved it. He said, When you're in a bank and a guy comes in with a gun, everybody's first reaction is this. He said, What you're saying to the guy with the gun is, You got no problem with me, buddy. You do whatever you want. You got no problem with me. He said, When he sees people raising their hands in church, he got no problem with it. He said, I just imagine them saying, You got no problem with me, buddy. Do whatever you want to do. But you see how the scripture says, Receive the implanted word which is able to receive your soul. It's gone out. It's going out. Everybody hears, not everybody listens. And for those of us who are believers, we've been saved, we've received this salvation. That's a wonderful thing, but now He's trying to do a work in and through us, through that spirit that's within us. We gotta stop pushing Him away. Stop trying to think, well, I'm going to make it right. I'm going to do better, God. I'm going to go to church more. And I'm going to, you understand? Whenever we try to do, you got to first believe and stop surrender to the fact that anything that he wants you to do can only be done by him. And then by faith, receive what it is that he's been trying to do and then act on what it is that he's asking you to do. Listen, believing that he will do it through you. I'm going to give you, Two passages that I'm just going to quote to you, and you can write them down and double check them and look at them later on. Colossians 1, 28 and 29, Paul talks about this gospel that he's preaching, and he says, to this end, I toil, I labor, but not me. It's God who powerfully works through me. And then 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, it says, if you've received a gift Exercise that gift by the grace that God provides. If you're speaking as if you're speaking the oracles of God, if you're serving with the strength that God provides so that he may get the glory. As a pastor for over 20 years in different churches, I've heard too many people who have spent their Christian life doing work for God in their own strength. And they say things like this, I'm burnt out. You ever heard that phrase? Let me ask you a question. Does the Holy Spirit ever run out? And that person doesn't understand what it means to let him do it. They were doing it in their own strength. Or no one's helping me. I'm tired. You never learned how to let God do it. I could be w- w- scared of this weekend coming up. I can't wait. You know why? Why? Because the one who has asked me to do it, and who has commanded me to do it, is going to do it. And I'm going to go preach like he will. Stand on your feet, Ezekiel. And when I heard his words, the Spirit entered me, and I stood on my feet. Oh, for Christians to understand how to hear the voice of God and let him do it. We'll see you in a week. Thanks for coming.